with all the information that now we can get, you know, natural language processing, which means we can have AI to read all the reports. I feel that getting all those information will enable us to do what we're really good as physicians, take care of people and try to get like the best decision. Well, that was Dr. Philippe Lefrancois. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Dermatology in the Department of Medicine at McGill University. He's also an attending physician at the Jewish General Hospital, the Division of Dermatology, and carries out his research in cutaneous oncology at the Lady Davis Institute. He's my guest today on JCMS Author Interviews, and I think you'll really enjoy his look at artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, and I'm a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, Dr. Lefrancois and I will discuss the article that he co-authored with Maxine Jolie-Chevrier in our January-February 2023 edition of JCMS titled, Artificial Intelligence Training in Canadian Dermatology to Increase Dermatologist Engagement and Enhance Medical Practice. So before we get started, though, just a reminder, you can access this article on the JCMS website over the three weeks after this episode is first posted. All right, well, Philippe, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me for a conversation on artificial intelligence. I mean, uh, what a fascinating subject to be talking about these days. Uh, you you have a co-author, Maxine uh, Jolet-Chevier. Um, what prompted the two of you to... Uh, to embark on this kind of research? So I would say that she came to me. Uh, she's from University of Montreal, a medical student that's really interested in artificial intelligence, uh, social media, and innovative technologies. And she came to me and she said, well, we should, we should check what's being done in residency program or in you know, staff teaching about artificial intelligence because she was mentioning all those apps that are coming. She's big on chat GPT as well. And uh, she mentioned to me, well, what's out there and uh, what's going on for, especially for skin cancer, like computer vision, which is one of our main area of focus in dermatology overall. And not surprisingly, we saw that the, the people didn't know much about artificial intelligence. Often the patient knew more than the dermatologists and those that are doing those uh, algorithms, they don't know dermatology. Clearly. And as you say, most of the time it's the patients come in with the app that, that either drove them into the office where they, you know, they looked at the app and they said, oh, my dear, my, my spot has these changes in it. I got to go see the dermatologist. I too look at these apps and say, well, okay, I'm not sure what this is all about. And then I go ahead and look at the spot. I never consider the app and what it's done for people or how many people have used the app and been told something is good when it's bad or vice versa? I mean, have you found any apps? Had she found any apps or had you found anything that can help us? Yeah. Not yet. We're not getting there yet. Uh, you know, some of those uh, more like I get sophisticated uh, and dermatology supervised techniques like, you know, photo finder, uh, some of the other one we get with Metoptim are, are working uh, and they can, you know, pick up melanomas, but you also have to screen out things like SKs that sometimes will become as false positive. So it's not just like doing an app and you're thinking about your SK. You may still have a patient that says, okay, this looks like cancer needs to be removed right now. 
And obviously, that's not the right one. On the other end, it may miss uh, the most important, like the, the one next to it, the ugly duckling. It's always a possibility. Right. And then the patient is always surprised. Remember the... I was going to say that separation is always surprised and I'm worried clinically and they're probably the same situation about something they're not worried about and what they're most worried about. I'm zero. Like I can reassure them very easily. Yeah. Well, we all know the story behind the separate keratosis. I mean, that's the thing that generally brings people into the office and then you look around and you find something else of value. I, I remember um, the introduction of the dermatoscope. And how it was to change how we managed patients. And, you know, I'm not so sure it's had such a tremendous impact. I mean, we we all train on it. We understand it. We get pretty good at recognizing things. But if, you, but if I step back, I'm not sure that I wouldn't have taken the spot off anyways, if you will. What do you think? Uh, so I feel that, you know, from far, that's you need to look at the bigger picture first. And then the dermatoscope is useful in certain cases, but if you're even not sure about the technique, you're still going to biopsy it anyway, or you don't find recognizable feature. And as you said, sometimes, yes, you look with your dermatoscope, but it, you already picked it up with your naked eye at the first place. And uh, the dermatoscope as well, uh, it, many of those apps uh, rely sometimes on dermoscopic images. And patients are using, you know, phone pictures. So then they're not really putting the right type of, you know, combined integrated information that the algorithm wants. And a dermoscopy, I don't know you, but sometimes I'm sometimes picking up MIS or very thin melanomas. In the grand scheme of things, these may not be the deadly ones, like the nodular ones that, you know, you just can figure out with naked eye that really make a big difference for the patient. How did you go about learning? Did 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 your co-author prompt you into learning more about AI? You talk about that in in, in your letter is something we should all pay more attention to. Are there sources that you could recommend to us uh, or ways to learn about these algorithm algorithms? So what I say is personally, I did a PhD in a genomics and computational biology lab. So that's I know a little bit more about, you know, programming, machine learning. And uh, it's always in in interesting to know that, like, AI is basically trying to make uh, machines that think like human. And machine learning is like a subset of it to really focus and try to us teach the machine what to learn or, like, make program it so it learns by itself. And uh, I think there are some good just Coursera resources if you're interested in AI, that would be free, that may, you know, help you much. But uh, it, it requires, like, many skills that were not taught in med school, uh, like advanced statistics, programming, uh, lots of probabilities, and computer science. And for things like, you know, vision, computer vision, it's highly... It's highly complicated. It's not something that you can write on a napkin and go and this is, okay, I understand AI now. But I feel that I one of the, the one I've done that was quite helpful, especially on neural network, was the class by, uh, I think, by Dr. Professor NG from uh, Stanford on Coursera. That was quite 
I think it's a nice introduction, uh, but we have so little time and being a busy clinician that gets we get overwhelmed very quickly with uh, those artificial intelligence. Is that the reason we're not going forward with this then? With artificial intelligence? Yeah, how, it, it seems to be rapidly advancing in most other fields. And yet, as you pointed out, it's not part of the teaching curriculum. It's We don't see it at our meetings. Uh, you know, the AED does have a, have a sort of a task force or something on it. And, and it seems to be just lumbering along. We're not, we're not jumping at it. We're not jumping at it. And we're letting because it's so complex. I think it's complex and it's, you, there's a sharp learning curve, unfortunately, to understand the, the rational and the, like the maths, the principles behind it. And you don't need to understand the full coding of it. But you need to understand like what it does, and I put it like as people like to have, for example, features. You know, you put up pictures, and you're looking with your dermatoscope with features. But when you're using like a neural network, you're having you know visible picture as an input, and it gives you an output of risk, which is not like uh, a certainty, but it gives you like probabilities. And in the middle, you have all those hidden features that you don't see that are like if you were to look at every output that are like intermediate in those hidden layers, you wouldn't make much sense of it. But the, that's the, the, the computers and you know, the neural network is learning by itself and it's also improving each time you're giving them more information. So the, you, know, you can train them on a thousand images, great. But if you train them on a hundred thousand images, they'll be much more robust. But that will be much more, you know, computationally intensive, and it's not something you can just like in your clinic EMR run, and it will s- smoothly go. So we're getting faster and faster, but sometimes you do need some computational power, and I feel uh, we're afraid of it because it's it's skills we're not taught. It's also uh, it's complex. It's not very like very straightforward to understand those principles. Lots of complex maths that we've possibly don't remember or took many a couple of beers to get through those exams in college. And now uh, we're, uh, and I think this, the societies are always a bit, ret- they're not really pushing it that much. In, in Canada, I don't think well, we have even a task for much going on on this. Well, I can't imagine that it's useful to the clinician as it currently stands, yeah. as it currently exists, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I, I just don't see a, I, I don't see a way to put it into the workflow at this point in time. I mean, um, very resource it's intensive. Giving me a differential diagnosis. Yeah, well, it's giving me a differential diagnosis, I guess, with with a with a, a listing them in you know, probability, the yeah. highest probability mm-hmm. at the top. And I, I gather that's that's how I sort of understand its usefulness. Yeah, that's how I, I can get it. But in the end, if it's, you know, you're still going to biopsy it, I guess. And like your clinical management will depend on the biopsy results and not really what the AI predicted in the first place. It's a good ancillary tools, but uh, you need to have also the resources to integrate it and the time to integrate it. Like it's not in our workflow right now. It's extra steps. Many of the algorithms... Some developers are trying to make it, you know, 
mobile phone friendly or app friendly. But if you have to run like a, a lot of memory, what's the point of it? Yeah, or take a picture and then, you know, take a picture and then you know, wait till the machine tells you what it is. And then in, and it's not, not going to be perfect, of course. And when things are not perfect, I think we go ahead and biopsy for individual spots or disease processes because we can get a better look at it. Um, maybe in the field of dermatopathology, it'll be better. I, I, I have the feeling that for automation, it might be better with clinical, because the, the images, they already are good with digital pathology. I have a colleague doing it and, you know, scanning slide and scanning slide and developing uh, machine learning based algorithm to find certain subset of features and get it across, let's say, the, the cancer genome atlas, like 12,000 tumor. You can do that versus us with a patient coming with a fuzzy picture that wasn't really at the right place that you're trying to do AI on this. This is not how uh, the algorithms were trained. So I do feel that it's it, not it will, work. Yeah. It, yeah, it's not going to work very well. And in the end, we'll still have to triage the results. It, it does work some for patient, let's say with many moles, things that we can't monitor. Uh, but those, you know, very, very fast app-based one that are easy to use by patient, they, they do have a lot of drawbacks. And especially skin of color is another one. Most of the training sets are with, you know, fair skin. So that's also something that we're, uh, we're lacking as well. Do you think it'll be first used by patients, not for spot identification, but for symptom identification? So they'll describe their symptoms and describe a bunch of things and, and the machine will then take over and provide the individual patient with the uh, diagnosis or, or I, uh, yeah, a, a course of action at any rate. Yeah, I feel that this is actually, uh, you do have, it's like a decision tree. I think it's actually something that is more feasible and will still give you a differential diagnosis, but instead of, do giving you the actual differential diagnosis gives you an action, which is, you know, what patient wants. They want to know what to do. And uh, it's the same as many AI to do the diagnosis itself. They're not always good. They're better at saying, do you biopsy or not? Is it cancerous or not? Like a yes, no is always a bit easier for them. Uh, so I feel that especially with patient having no clue with their symptoms, uh, I think it will be helpful. They will use it. And especially if you start to have like a uh, personalized question, depending what you're answering, like if the algorithm adapts to your prior uh, question and gives you personalized answer based on that, I think there's some power, but I'm always afraid in the end that everybody will come and think they have cancer because every symptoms will We're... be like cancer. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got to, because I mean, if you make the wrong diagnosis, well, just like in our world, you know, I mean, we always err, quote, on the side of caution, right? I mean, if you have a hint that something is potentially a problem, mm -hmm. you're going to go for your best technique to make to take away the um, the uncertainty, and that's usually pathology. Yeah, and I I, I feel that even pathology is more definitive, and it's it's we're going to 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 have 
sometimes I do have patients coming with the reports. I don't know if you have the same, but telling me like, oh, this mole is suspicious, needs to remove, be removed. It's like picture number 17. And I'm like, okay, did you bring that picture number 17? Oh, no. Sometimes they do know which one it is, but uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, we're going to be given, and we'll still have to judge whether it's, it's okay to remove it or not. Like given AI, let's say I'm borderline, I'm not sure. If I'm 100% sure it's benign, I won't touch it. But let's say I have any dot given, you know, AI, it does influence a little bit what you're going to do next. Because you're like, hmm, if this go to, you know, let's say medical legal action, well, the AI had told me some risk and then I decide to do otherwise, I need to be pretty confident that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, the um, the AI, the chat GPT is not going to be responsible for its actions. Yes, and will be responsible for it in the in the end. And uh, but I think it's still lacking from uh, our curriculum and dermatology residency. I don't know what you think, but I mean we don't discuss much of those topics in in Canada. I think we've had some some meetings or even during. Uh, residency training, most of our trainees are not exposed to that. So they're... Yes. Well, well, you know, and I, I, I can understand why, because I mean, from my point of view, I don't see this being relevant to dermatology for five years. I, I yeah. mean, and so I can say where people will say, well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now because I've got so many other things I, mm-hmm. I need to pay attention to and to learn. And and so, what do you think? I mean, is this a? But I, you know, I see the exponential growth in other fields, and I, I, and you know, you hear, hear the pundits talking about the dangers of AI and and how it's going to, you know, in, inform every one of our decisions. And yet, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. In my specialty, it's not going to do that. How is it going to be useful for other people in other walks of life? I, I feel it must it's, be confronted with the same issues. Yes, I think many walks of life, and they can even. I think the it was it. The, there are some jobs that will never be replaced by AI, no matter what. But I feel even our work, like right now, I agree that in five years it's not going to replace us anyway. And the technologies are not mature yet. The like studies on sensitivity specificities are still not great. They're on selected patient, always in optimal conditions. Unless this is done more systematic, fast, accessible, and that can actually be integrated into practice. Like you take a picture, it tells you within seconds what, what it thinks. Uh, then unless we're at that point and there's some safety of it, like it's cloud-based uploaded in the patient chart or something else because you don't want it to carry all those pictures on your phone. So you have to, to kind, of, kind of integrate it within our routine and we're from, from there at this point. And other fields, I think imaging, that is more like whether pathology or even radiology for detection of certain things, like you know, finding region of interest, trying to uh, characterize you know, tumor growth, uh, probably is more mature and uh, is better, I would say, than, you know, you tracing it uh, with the radiology, with like the ruler and trying to measure it. I think there's, and you can integrate like multiple layers, so you can actually get shapes that don't look just round or 
lines or squares. So I feel like that has probably very useful implication for us. Something maybe like ulcer sizes may be a, a, a easier way to apply it than let's say uh, discrimination because between uh, benign pre uh, benign and malignant, for example. With your previous background, you've had a lot of training in, in computer-related issues, com- computational um, work. What do you think? Are, are you continually frustrated in your workday is thinking about how you could possibly integrate artificial intelligence into dermatology? I, I, I feel that it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. And also, just to give you an example, at our, our institution, I can't even upload pictures due to like archives and medical legal issue in the hospital I am. So that's like, a, I'm a dermatologist that can't take picture and can't put it in patient chart. So, and that would also uh, foster other, uh, you know, collaborations. We have collaboration right now on biobanking that we're trying to integrate multi-level in, um, modalities. So we're getting sequencing data with clinical data that's read with natural language processing, so a type of artificial intelligence, plus various type of imaging data. So we're having, uh, you know, morphological, dermoscopy, if they have radiology, all of that being integrated for predictive models. So there's other collaborators that that's what they specialize in. So we're trying to move like globally and see what we can do. And it's a challenge when you're dealing with, you know, like radiology and then dermoscopy and then just like a phone picture. Plus you're combining this with like reports that you, um, clinical notes. Uh, but I feel like this, if we want to go in a meaningful integrated area, it needs to go into getting all those key information together, including the genomics, and then helping you to make decisions so that you spend less time analyzing all of those yourself, but that things are automated and that you can, you know, build fast models that can, uh, re- like at your tumor board, you can rather go for empathy, discussing, you know, tr- possible treatment plans rather than concentrating of all the, on all this data. I don't know what you think, but it's, uh, I think in a couple, maybe a decade or so, that might be what's happening. So using your your crystal ball, if you will. How do what do you see the future? The in the how how do you see this uh, ten years from now? Uh, so I do feel that we'll have AI tools that we may or may not use, but that will be available. Hopefully, will be faster and more convivial. Uh, data security will still be an issue because we're still you know having too many breaches. Confidentiality is an issue, uh, and then recognizing, you know, individual patients. But I hope that we can use what the patient is is giving us, and uh, spending, you know, not as much time into individual lesion, but maybe those that are really uh, are are really the problematic ones. Uh, but I think what, with wearables with like omics being cheaper and cheaper with all the information that now we can get, you know, natural language processing, which means we can have AI to read all the reports. 
I feel that getting all those information will will enable us to do what we're really good as physicians, like take care of people and try to get like the best decision. So we'll be the interpreter. I think we'll be the interpreter, yes. We'll be the interpreter. And the, communi- so we'll... the communicator, because each patient is unique. Like I can tell them this would be the best thing, but it might not be the best thing for that particular patient. Like, you know, we're good at making probabilities or telling you're, you should do that because there's a 70% chance of risk to decrease uh, disease progression. But N equal one, so one patient is could be in the bad, uh, you know, 30%. That doesn't have any response. So we'll have to, to kind of, I think we'll spend more time discussing those uh, those, yeah, well, we'll try to see much the patient. I think the patient will be more centered in the care for that part. Yeah, and 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 at the end of the day, though, the question is still going to be, what would you do, doc? Yes, and that they will not be able to like if it were they will not be able to be like computer helping us for that part. If it was your like, let's say your mother or your grandmother, would would you do that treatment? Would you remove this? Would you go for forward? Uh, with, I don't know, immunotherapy. And that's always a a discussion that AI can't yet, I hope for many decades, answer that human interaction. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how it takes the human out of the interaction because, you know, it's like if you use a drug for the first time and you have a bad, and your patient has a terrible reaction to it, no matter what the statistics say, yes. the second time you get in that position, you're always saying to yourself, I wonder if I should use a different medication, yes. right? Because you ha- you personally had a bad experience with that medicine. We don't think that way that say, well, we know that's a one in a hundred and I just happened to treat you, you, you and you were the one, you know? And, and of course, it doesn't mean that patient number two isn't going to be another one in a yeah. hundred. But but it still it still takes us back and it it's it may make life more complicated, not simpler. <laughs> yes, I think so. And having more numbers makes things more complicated. I think I, I agree. Like there's a medication and a side effect that you know is supposed to happen in 0.8 percent of people. Well, I have ten patients on it. One is having that side effect. That's quite serious. It's fine now, but it tells you that do I still use that drug? Yes. But I, I know, you know, probabilities and, you know, Bayesian model that says that basically each iteration is, is unique. Like there's no, it's unrelated events, but still, it's still always, I have to convince myself, okay, that's the right medication that I can give. And uh, if I get more than, let's say, 2% of that rare side effects, then I might worry that maybe the population I'm dealing with is different than the one that was studied. But uh, it does make you like think twice, definitely, because you're like, yes. I don't want this to happen. Don't want to call ER, get the patient, and, you know, I see you again. No. Yeah, well, it's like the engineers building bridges. Sometimes they have just too much information. And the famous bridges that move, the engineers, you know, the, the famous bridges that sway, like they weren't predicted to, to do. And the, sometimes the engineers just have too much information to deal with. And and I and like fighter pilots, they have the heads-up display mm-hmm. that takes their, you know, the, 
they, they get more information than the human brain can possibly process in the time it needs to process. So they only have five things that show up in front of them yeah. that they make their decision from. So I feel like that's, as I said, like if in 10 years we have more of those data, we'll have to interpret it and it has to be in some sort of integrated model or predictive model of some sort that's simpler, more applicable to decrease the burden of information. Yep. Because if you remember, like the, I wrote a bias CME, having too much information makes you make way too many mistakes. So we have to decrease the complexity of things. And I think we have to use so we, more of those tools that AI will provide, hopefully correctly, not like in a unstructured, a bit dangerous way that some of the AI is working these days uh, to, to our benefit. So instead of a dermatoscope, I'll have a heads up display. I'll have instead of a loop, I'll have a thing over my eye that t- gives me the heads up display. Or glasses, you don't like the former Google glasses that you see. Uh, yes. <laughs> we'll need yeah, that. Something, yeah. Yeah. But, but, Listen, that was fascinating. I, I, I'm not sure that uh, I'm convinced. I don't see a path yet for this technology. I, I, I see it in spot diagnosis. Um, maybe I don't see a path through to the inflammatory diseases yet, uh, but I'm sure it's coming. I mean, it's 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 all it's all depending upon smart people like you mm-hmm. to, to put dermatologists in the AI world. Yes. Right? But I mean, I, I can tell you, like there's many trials. I'll give you an example of a colleague that asked for my help on. Let's say you have two drugs, oncology drugs. You have the standard treatment and then you have the standard treatment plus some like fancy antibody conjugate. And it tells you like, okay, with thousands of patients, you get 12%, you know, absolute survival. So, you know, that's great. But you also can think from a societal point of view, what is most beneficial? It would be actually to identify patient that, you know, still responds to this, that actually are in close spatial proximity and would be responders to both drugs. So that you can still give those the standard of care. And then you can find which area do you get patient that, you know, their tumors, for, for instance, were highly resistant to that, you know, standard treatment, but the addition made them go into being sensitive. So you have to find those sweet points, but you also have to find for a cost effectiveness, those uh, that will... Uh, you know, respond just to the standard treatment. Because then if you can like save 60, tell 60% of people, okay, you just need the standard treatment. That's a major, you know, cost reduction. And and, it's the thing we, we don't talk about much is the cost of these advancements. And that's especially, I think the costs of our biologics are quite big. Our costs of immunotherapy is even bigger. Uh, so these are things and you were doing very, very fancy, uh, like in, innovative stuff in this country that will result in highly specialized Medicaid. It costs money, those, those development. And I think sometimes using AI like this, you could actually take, let's say, profile your tumors, do a principal component analysis. So try to just cluster tumor, see where they are in the, the grand scheme of things for a global profile. You don't even look for genes, just globally, where are they? And then you can, you know, infer uh, which population uh, would benefit or not. Because sometimes finding those that just respond to standard therapy 
would be great. So you wouldn't have to go to that costly addition of medication that costs hundreds of thousands if you can do a test for like a couple thousand. Yeah. So that is using the power of the computer. Yes. To 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 determine that there's something unique about mm -hmm. th this individual that will allow them to respond to this yeah. treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be yeah. great for things like uh, some of our treatment. I don't, I don't like let's say biologics for psoriasis. If we can, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. If I could say which Find one, one would, yeah, <laughs> which yeah, one which would like work a... in the guarantee you hit a home run with this one because you're susceptible to that. We, yeah, we take but, a, but I don't know. Is that, is that, that's just, the power of numbers, figuring it, figuring. We're looking for that, as you say, sweet spot or that that marker yeah. that identifies that person. But sometimes it might not the, be a marker. It might be the actual profile of like what the, and so that's, and you know, on a PCA plot, it's a 2D plot. So it basically has, it integrates everything. Sometimes when we're doing biomarkers, they're imperfect. When you're looking at a profile that has, you know, thousands and thousands of information I don't even know because the model know, then we're more powerful. But then to go okay, in retrospective, sure. uh, there are other ways that you can identify those for finding out biomarkers. But I feel it's it, it's you have to think a bit more globally at first. Than yeah, trying so to more than th yeah, so don't thinking of one thing, looking at 50 things, and if those 50 things all spin the right way, yes. that's your person. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's what I would think uh, more and more in the, for the future. I think uh, that would be actually more powerful. But then again, we have to have the companies that actually give us access to that data. Yeah. And that is, uh, especially when it's pharma, uh, that might be an area of contention because it's like, yeah, the data is you know not shareable. Well, it's not really meaningful. But of course it is meaningful. If they came up with this, they they, they they have the answer sometimes. Yeah, well, they, they collect a lot of data and, and it's you can see their hesitation. Um, yeah. But at the same time, um, there will be a point in time where that information isn't so valuable to them in a business sense. So maybe they'll be more willing yeah, to, I think to so. share. More yeah. willing to share it. But even some of the... Uh, just shocked, like we were trying to do at some point a project with wearables, you know, those devices that track your heart rate, blood pressure, etc. And all this data is often very black box, meaning and the companies are very restrictive of what they're giving. And, you know, they give you very cryptic data, not complete, don't want to share. So even though you think like, oh, these are new generation, but, you know, because of patent and market shares, it's not always uh, easy to access mm. that. It's not like you can just put your uh, watch on uh, on the com on the computer and it will give you in a nice graph all your data. It might give you all the data, but what about the raw data that you add, like second per second, or uh, you won't have that probably available to you. Well, the world it's all about collaboration. I think so. so. We need to collaborate yeah. more. We need uh, also our awareness of what's going on. But again, I think, as you said, in the end, we'll still be the one integrating all this information and having the discussion with the patient. And that will not change with AI. I just wish maybe we had a little bit more 
understanding of what was uh, what's going on and also being more involved in the actual design of algorithms. So those algorithms design with a dermatologist incorporates like 12 times more images than those by non-dermatologists. So we do still have a role for development and trying to, you know, be a part of the solution, but it's still at this point, I agree, imperfect and not integrated with our daily practice. No, just to remind us, you mentioned there was a there was a someone from Stanford that we could go to to is it a course? Yeah, that, I think um, it's Coursera Andrew and G. Yeah, it's the deep learning uh, course by Andrew and G on Coursera. Okay, and so that would be a few hour commitment and yeah, help us to understand. I mean, this. you could. At least having an idea of what's like a neural network or what's going on there, I think there's enough open classes like uh, like whether it's Coursera or something else that uh, provide those information for us to to learn about these. It's not going to the to the AED that you will learn about machine learning in a s- sufficient way, and. Uh, I do think that, you know, open resources would be good for everybody to have at least an idea. Even just watching a night podcast or a video that's you know, complete enough to explain the basis. So you have an idea of what it's actually doing. So like, Okay, it, well, um, you've turned me a little bit more into an optimist that this might be helpful. I, I'm <laughs> going to tell you that that as I read your article, I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, we're a long ways away. <laughs> but we're still a long ways sure. away. But we're <laughs> still a long ways away, but at least I see value in maybe starting on the journey. And that's perhaps yes. a better way for me to put it, right? Yeah. Uh, you've, 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 you've heightened my interest and explained it very well. And I'm going to go and do machine learning, machine, find out more about machine learning because it's that seems to be the important critical piece for me at this point at this point in time and just i think understanding the basis of you know what is let's say supervised or unsupervised how does machine learning fits into the artificial intelligence spectrum we're using a lot of computer vision and you know dermatology what what is it and i think just having not going in details but just having an idea of what it actually does like what the computer does with what is seeing is I think helpful. What is deep learning? Like everybody learn about convolutional neural network, but what is actually, without going into the math, just like what is the structure? Why, like you're asking the machine learning, there's no features. So why that you can pull up from the intermediate step? So you do have to understand this. You can go back and say, what did it do for that exact images? We don't know, but we know it went given input given output at an error rate and then went back to update all the parameters of the network for the next image to start again to start again well thank yeah. you for your time thank I, you uh, I, Dr. Barber. it's 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 intriguing i'll tell you it's uh, it's it's very intriguing and it clearly is the future yeah we'll have it more and more in yeah, all our you. wake of life maybe not in dermatology as much as we think but i think in possibly in the, in our daily life as well okay thank you Well, thanks, Philippe. Uh, That was fascinating. Um, I hope our readers are as intrigued to enter the world of artificial intelligence as uh, I am after listening to you. 
And uh, thank you to our listeners for listening. And um, that's it for this episode of the JCMS Author Interviews uh, podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. If you did, uh, please give us a rating, review where you listen. Be sure to subscribe uh, so you don't miss our future episodes. Uh, if you're looking for more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out Dermalogs, our uh, podcast for our, our residents, uh, hosted by my colleague, uh, Dr. Carrie Purdy. So once again, I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, be good to each other.